sometimes unconventional, but always entertaining. They're kooky and they're spooky. It's time to cross to the other side. Welcome to Spooky Sundays with Anne and Renata. And welcome to Spooky Sundays, all of you paranormal perfectionists. You are listening to the New Orleans version as Renata and I are winging our way. Well, actually, I think we may have landed. We may have winged by now. Yeah, we've winged and we've landed and we've eaten our first bit of Creole food. Mm, And we're having heartburn, right? But that's okay (laughs) because I actually, I've brought a stack of tablets with us. I'm I'm not going to miss out on anything. I've got all the medication we need to eat everything i've got gastro stop i've got stomach cramp stop i've got i've got antacid stop we're we're, got, we're covered you got poo stop yep that's and, a gastro and, stop and poo go poo go oh, oh yes i can bring poo go too <laughs> so we don't end up with bowling balls up our butts <laughs> which often happens when you travel does it oh geez we've already gone there and oh. we're one minute into the show oh. all right so we we took off yesterday morning and I'm still sounding a little bit husky. Woof, woof. <laughs> oh, no, it's more husky. It's, oh, I'm sorry. I digress. Yeah, so the, we took off Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Uh, in Australian time. And I'm I'm praying to the gods of the upgrades that somebody may look favourably upon us oh. and upgrade us so we get out of cattle class. But we're going, and that's all that matters. And uh, we're going to be arriving after three flights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And an, an Uber. An Uber. To a um, camping ground. <laughs> what? <laughs> Not a camping a ground. Commune, I a think commune. You, I think you said it was a commune. A commune. But we do have our own bathroom, so I'm happy. Uh, and we've got uh, our own beds each, so I'm happy. Uh, All right. Okay. Do we have a news of the week, Renata? Yes. And I've had to dig a little bit deeper to get to the news of the week this week because um, obviously nothing really much is happening in the world when it comes to the paranormal. Uh, and so it's I've, ha- I've had dead. To, I've, had to, I've, I've had to go back a little bit, okay. but I have found this interesting story because we have been to this haunted Irish castle. Oh, have we? Which one? Uh, well, no, actually, we haven't. Oh, no. I Sorry. might have. You, <laughs> you might not have. have. You may have. <laughs> so this is about Castle Ellen House in County Galway, Ireland. No, I haven't been there. We've and, been to Galway, and this is a story about a ghost who uh, seems to have come back to haunt his old house and ghost ghost hunters have proof of this oh i'd like oh i love i love the word proof in paranormal instead of evidence Yeah, so the ghost is said to be that of Walter Peter Lambert, and he died in 1892 at the Imperial Hotel in Tuam, <gasps> County Galway, after choking. Oh, oh mm. we know Tuam. That, that, that was he choked on a chicken bone because that's what they choke on. What was and, he doing and, swallowing a chicken bone? No, I'm just saying, um, my, my psychic ability. He's going and saying he right. choked on a chicken okay, bone. You're visualizing. And no one had that. No one knew how to do that. The Heimlich. The Heimlich remover. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is. (laughs) The Heimlich remover. Oh, you've made my night. Thank you. Oh, sorry. The Heimlich. Manoeuvre. Manoeuvre. Yeah. (laughs) So, here we go. 
um, Paranormal Supernatural Investigations Ireland can claim to have footage that confirms the of the ghost's presence at Castle Ellen House in Galway. And, of course, this is being reported by, on by the Irish Mirror. Almost as good as the English Mirror, but it's yeah. the Irish Mirror. Uh, Mr Lambert, who was part of the wealthy Anglo-Irish family who owned Castle Ellen House, was 76 when he died. Jeez, that's a ripe old age. Yeah. And the uh, the paranormal team claimed that a maid was cleaning his bedroom on the day of his death when she said... Top of the morning to you. No. no. <laughs> the master has returned. <gasps> don't, don't. Master. Oh, the master. The master has returned. And it's the shittiest photo you could ever imagine, but I'm going to put it up on the True Hauntings podcast. Um, True Hauntings? Is that where the, it's going? Or is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to put it up on the True Hauntings page. Because this is Spooky Sunday. Yeah, but, I know. Know, we'll go with we, it. We, do, we put up stuff on, from Spooky we, Sunday. Yeah, we do some cross-pollination. And, and it is a really ridiculous photo of um, a bit of light that's shining on some uh, on a rock wall and obviously it looks like a squashed face. Oh, right. It disappoints me when paranormal teams do that. Mm. Keep going. So um, the co-founder of Psy Ireland, PSI, and I'm, I won't say his name because he might no longer be the co-founder, so I want to say at <laughs> After the time this story. of this, the co-founder said on the day of his death, maids were cleaning his bedroom. A one looked out of the window and said, the master has returned. <gasps> Deja vu. He was on foot, which was unusual as he travelled by coach. There might not be any coaches in heaven. I don't know. He had already been dead for some hours before this. Stinky. It has also been reported the coach and horses with Lambert's remains on board refused to enter the gate of Castle Ellen House. <laughs> the second team of horses were bought from the stables, but they also refused to pass the entrance. This left the staff with no option but to carry the remains up the very long avenue. Castle Ellen House has also been connected to other famous personalities. Mm, Oscar Wilde visited oh. during summer holidays as a child. And the mother of Edward Carson, the father of unionism, was born in the house. Oh, I must go and get an autograph. So later, Cy Ireland said that they obtained video footage that confirmed... Uh, proof. The, ...the presence of a ghost in Lep Castle, County Offaly. Oh, we've been there. And they claimed more video footage from inside the building. And, oh, they're special. And it appears to show a ghost in one of the mirrors. Right. Mm. Mm. So they named what they believed to be a supernatural being, or they gave it the fa a fantastic name. Mm -hmm. What? You guess, guess, guess. Phantom? No, no. No? No, they, were, they were very original and they called it Man in the Mirror. <gasps> oh, Michael would have been proud. Yes. And a group of six people from Sai Ireland carried out the examination and a spokesman said, we feel the evidence we have captured confirms the findings about the man in the mirror. Man in the mirror. You should have the, that song next. We, we should go to Man in the Mirror. Oh, but it's a Michael Jackson song. Is that okay? That's okay by me. All right. There's been no proof against him. Okay. Are you done? Uh, yeah, that's that's about as exciting as um, this week's News of the Week is. Oh, I'm just 
so excited. I'm, I'm moist. Oh dear. All right. Well, we'll. Um, I'm going to see if we can pop in that song straight after here. Okay. You'll know if it works or not. Yes. But we'll be back after this. Spooky Sundays with Anne and Renata on Newcastle Live. It's the ABC of Mythical Creatures by Anne. Welcome back, everyone. It's that time. Renata's favourite segment. Mm-hmm. And she just see my eyes rolling to the back of my head. This, that noise you just heard was the sound of Renata's eyes going, <laughs> wee! Yeah. Uh, but now look, you made me put this one in. This yes. is This is your choice. I did the letter R last week. Yes. But you said, no, no, no. You've got to do another one because there is one that is specific to Louisiana. Yes. Where we are going. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's the Rougarou. Yeah, Rougarou. Yeah. I've done some research. Have you, darling? I have. Did it hurt? I did, actually. Oh. It hurt a lot. But I've I've fluffed it and spiced it with a little help from G- ChatGPT. Oh, you no. Do. <laughs> oh, will you get off that? ChatGPT, please. Now, I, I think this is the one I said, can we do it in the style of David Attenborough? So let's see what happens. Oh, okay. In the intricate tapestry of Louisiana's francophone communities, whispers of a legendary creature named a Rougarou have been woven through generations. This enigmatic being, also known by various appellations such as a Rougarou and a Rougarou and the Rug. <laughs> As its roots deeply entrenched in the rich soil of French folklore, it bears a striking resemblance to the Loup Garou, a mythical man who undergoes a startling transformation into a wolf-like entity under the glowing glaze of the full moon. Okay. Mm. And guess what it is tonight as we're recording this? The full moon. Oh. And I've got the puppy dogs in the background. Let's hope somebody knocks at the door and they go feral and we can say, it's a Rougarou! Depicted traditionally with the body of a human and the head of a wolf or dog. Don't listen, puppies. The Rougarou emerges from the shadows as a classic werewolf figure. Legends envelop this creature in a shroud of mystery, painting it as a predator of those who dare to defy societal norms. Oh, it's judgy. Mm. Oh, um, or encroach upon its hidden territories. So don't put your big toe over that line. No. Whatever you do. Intriguingly, tale, tales whisper of a transformative curse. This is sounding more and more like a werewolf, yep. suggesting that one may metamorphose into a rougarou through a bite or a scratch. Mm-hmm. Oh, yep, that's yep. a werewolf. Yes. A narrative arc reminiscent of many a werewolf legend. Mm. Though this creature resides firmly in the realm of myth with no empirical evidence to substantiate its existence, from what I've heard, we're going to meet a werewolf over there. One of our tour guides is a werewolf. Mm. Oh, okay. Mm. So we'll either come back saying, um, no, he's not a werewolf, or we start howling on the full moon. Yes. Uh, right, uh, so it's supposed to be a myth. Uh, continues to cast a long shadow in the folklore of Louisiana, particularly amongst the Cajun communities. 
The origins of the Rougarou legend can be traced to the footsteps of the French settlers, the Arcadians. Is that how you say it? A- mm-hmm. Ac- Acadians? There's no R in there. She's shrugging her shoulders. That's not good for radio. Mm-hmm. As they embark on a journey into the new world, initially finding solace in the region of Acadia and Canada, these settlers faced expulsion in the wake of the British conquest in the early 18th century. Many sought refuge in the diverse landscapes of Louisiana because um, it's just a hop, skip and a jump across from Canada over to that side, isn't it? You don't know your maps terribly well? Okay. Um, So that's where they got uh, the name the Cajuns from. Now, here is the melting pot of cultures. They encountered a myriad of stories and traditions from the Native American and African communities intertwining to give birth to a unique folklore tapestry. So they've taken a little bit from this and a, a little, little bit, bit from, from that, that and they've put it all together in a big pot and stirred it up. Uh, amidst the enigmatic swans and bayous of Louisiana, the legends of the Loup Garou underwent a fascinating evolution, transforming it into the Rue Garou. You're fascinated, aren't you? I am. The met- Don't worry, I've got a story. I have a great story. The metamorphosis of tales is a reflection of the harmonious amalgamation of diverse traditions. Too many big words. I know, right? Serving as a vessel for stories whispered from one community to another. We need a vessel. We've got a safe we've got a safe safe container. (laughs) The Rugaru with its lurking presence in the shadows of the swamps became an emblem of the unknown and a cornerstone for cautionary tales. Are you yawning? Yes. <laughs> You're sending me to sleep. Oh, God. I'm sure there's somebody out there that's enjoying this. These tales, rich in mystery and draped in the unknown, played pivotal roles within the societal structure. They served as cautionary whispers during individuals, especially the young, away from potentially perilous embrace of the swamps. In other words, they made up shit to keep them out of the swamps where it was dangerous. Legend became an instrument to uphold moral and societal norms. Do it the right way or the Rougarou's going to come and eat you. Yes. A gentle reminder for individuals to adhere to religious practices. <gasps> oh, that's manipulation, they, isn't it? It is. It's manipulation, people. Did you hear us say that? Yep. Oh, that was my outside voice. That was a bit loud. Um, let's, so you've got to follow the rules or they'll fall prey to the uh, creature or undergo a transformation themselves. All right. We are going to go to a story so we understand it better. Oh, really? Yep, and I've got the hiccups, so this is going to be good. Gather around, my friends, oh. as the firelight dances in the shadows and the crickets serenade the night. Tonight I shall unveil the chilling tale of the Rougarou, a creature that dwells in the darkness of Louisiana's mysterious swamps. Once upon a nocturnal symphony... Give me a bucket. In a quaint Cajun village on the edge of a forbidden bayou, whispers of a sinister presence fluttered on the breeze. They spoke of the Rougarou, half man, half wolf, its eyes glowing. I wonder if it changes depending on the, the oh, transformation. Oh. Mm. Um, its eyes glowing like crimson embers in a night. A fearsome guardian of the swamps, it was said to punish those who trespassed into the realms or strayed from the righteous path. 
In this secluded village lived a young, audacious, la- audacious lad named Emil. Emil. Emil's curiosity was as vast as the Louisiana sky, and tales of the Rougarou only fueled his adventurous spirit. Despite the stern warnings from the elders, Emil was determined to uncover the truth behind the mythical creature. On the eve of a full moon, cloaked in a silvery glow, Emile embarked on his daring quest with a lantern in hand and courage in his heart. He delved into the depths of the bayou, where shadows whispered ancient secrets. The swamp was alive with nocturnal melodies. But Emil pressed on, his his path illuminated by the flickering lantern light. The deeper he ventured, the more the air grew dense with foreboding whispers. The, the tree seemed to conspire, the twisted limbs reaching out as if to grasp his very soul. A chill ran down Emil's spine as he heard a distant howl, a mournful symphony that resonated with the very heartbeat of the bayou. Unbeknownst to Emile, his pursuit had not gone unnoticed. Lurking in the shadows, the Rougarou watched, its crimson eyes fixated on the intruder. It was a creature of legend, cursed to roam the swamps for transgressions long forgotten. A sentiment, a sentinel of the forbidden bayou. With every step... Emil felt the presence of unseen eyes, the weight of the swamp secrets bearing down on him. The howls grew louder. A harmonious chorus with the rustling reeds and the croaking frogs. Crobit, crobit. Fear clawed at his resolve, but the allure of allure, allure, allure of the unknown propelled him forwards. Then in the middle, sorry, in a clearing bathed in the moonlight, he saw it. The Rougarou. Oh, get on with it. Its fur was as dark as night, its eyes ablaze with an unearthly glow. A growl rumbled in its chest. <sighs> a sound that echoed the sorrow of the cursed existence. Emil froze, caught his breath in his throat. <gasps> <laughs> As he met the gaze of the legendary creature, the Rougarou stepped forward, its form shrouded in shadows and moonlight. It spoke of a curse, of the transgressions that bound it to the bayou, and of the redemption it sought. Emile listened, his heart heavy with the creature's tale. With the break of dawn, Emile emerged from the bayou, forever marked by the encounter. The village listened in awe as he recounted the tale of the Rougarou, a creature of darkness and light, a guardian of ancient secrets. The tale of Emile and the Rougarou became a legend, a campfire story whispered on moonlight, moonlit nights. The Rougarou continued to roam the bayou. A reminder of the mysteries that lay in the shadows, the redemption that dwelled in the light, and Emile forever changed became a storyteller, a keeper of the bayou's secrets, and a bridge between the seen and the unseen. We'll be back after this. 
And we're back with Spooky Sundays. I hope you all enjoyed having a sing-along to that. I hope that was the song that went in, Never Ending Story. Turn around. Look at what you see. So my voice is cutting out. And you're all going, thank God. (laughs) All right, Renata, what story have you got for us? I have a story that's called The Flaming Tomb of Josie Arlington. Now, this is found in... Uh, one of the cemeteries in New Orleans. And um, there are a couple of spooky things associated with this particular headstone. Uh, And I will post a picture on um, our True Hornings podcast page uh, because it shows a woman about to enter a doorway or coming out of a doorway. It's full size. It's majestic. And um, I want to talk a little bit about who Josie Arlington is via this story that was written by Craig Dominey. It was another crowded Saturday night as Josie Arlington sat wearily on her plush couch, (sighs) lit a cigarette and silently observed the crowd gathered in her parlour. Standing around the lavishly decorated room were the most powerful men in New Orleans. High society politicians, judges, lawyers, doctors, even a police commander or two, and she knew the money would be flowing into her coffers once again. (laughs) Most club owners would be ecstatic at such a large crowd, but not Josie. She dragged on her cigarette and bitterly whispered to herself, what hypocrites? hypocrites. For she also knew that not one of these gentlemen would dare acknowledge her presence outside Hmm. the secretive walls of the club that bared her name, The Arlington. For Josie Arlington was the most infamous madam in the most scandalous district in New Orleans, Storyville. Josie always said that the life of a madam chose her. She didn't choose it. She was orphaned at the age of four and the only parents she knew were the nuns at St Elizabeth's home who took her in. No wonder she became a madam. But their attempts to scare the fear of God in her over the years, eventually drove her away and straight onto the mean streets of New Orleans. Now as crazy as New Orleans is these days, back in the 19th century, it was downright lecherous. There were red light districts all over town and while the trade was not officially accepted, it was certainly tolerated. Josie knew where the real money was to be made and became a teenage prostitute under the control of an older lover. Oh, that that's not a lover, that's a pimp. Oh, yeah. The life as a prostitute destroyed many women in New Orleans, but not Josie Arlington. As the years went on, she gained quite a reputation as a tough, no-nonsense woman of the night. She even got into a legendary fist fight with a rival prostitute, biting off part of her lips and ears. <gasps> oh, my God. But Josie knew she couldn't work as a prostitute forever. And to make a life for herself, she would have to take advantage of the very men who were taking advantage of her. She would become a madam. So Josie opened a bordello in one of the largest red light districts in New Orleans. The district was located along the Basin Line Rail Line, sorry, Basin Street Rail Line, just a few blocks from the French Quarter. Despite her rowdy reputation, Josie wanted to clean up her image and open a refined establishment where true gentlemen could pay for the services of, as she put it, amiable foreign girls. Oh, tasty treats. While her brothel became quite successful, the city of New Orleans was about to make her richer than she could 
have ever imagined. For in 1897, the city leaders decided upon a bold experiment. Rather than fight vices like prostitution and gambling, they decided to control them by confining them to one supervised area, the exact district where Josie had set up shop. The area was named Storyville and it soon became an amusement park of sin. An amusement park of sin. Uh, oh, I'd like to see that roller coaster. No, the, actually, I wouldn't. The densely packed neighbourhood was filled with saloons and brothels. High-class gentlemen and rogues alike staggered through the streets, fueled by exotic drugs and overpriced booze, listening to the sounds of the piano jazz in between trysts with the endless collection of prostitutes. And of all the bordellos in Storyville, none was larger and more lavish than the Arlington. Beautiful girls in exotic European lingerie waited in the grand parlour for the most powerful men in New Orleans to walk through the door. But while Josie Arlington revelled in her upper-class status within the walls of Storyville, she soon found out that she had a much different reputation within New Orleans high society. When Josie Arlington left the streets of Storyville on any given day, her male customers would suddenly look away when she passed them in the street. Some would grab the hands of their confused wives and dart to the other side of the street to avoid her approach. Uh-oh, she knew who'd been there. Even when she bought a mansion in one of New Orleans' most affluent neighbourhoods, she was still an outcast to the high society women of New Orleans. She could hear them whispering and giggling behind her back when she came home at night. I wonder how many of these ladies know that their husbands visit me on weekends, she thought to herself. (laughs) Oh, she's got a power there. But she kept silent, her bitterness festering inside her. In later years, Josie fell into ill health and the piles of money she made at the Arlington Arlington began to seem meaningless. She began to fixate on her approaching death and knew it would provide her one more opportunity to get back at those who shunned her. So Josie Arlington shocked New Orleans one more time by purchasing a plot at Metairie Cemetery. How does that go again? I don't know. Metairie. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Say it with a bit of an accent. Metairie. Metairie Cemetery, <laughs> the most expensive and fashionable graveyard in town. Ooh. Now the high society women were truly mortified. Oh, we can't have someone they like They couldn't her imagine there. a dirty, low-life prostitute <sighs> being buried within the same cemetery as their oh, loved good ones. Good honour but there was nothing they could do. <laughs> now, Metairie Cemetery was and is to this day one of the most impressive cemeteries you've ever likely seen. It's a bewildering, be- bewildering maze of great giant mausoleums and monuments with some of the most powerful and well-known names in New Orleans history ch- chiselled onto their stone facades. <laughs> Josie Arlington knew she needed a special monument in the cemetery and commissioned an architect to design her tomb unlike any other. Oh, what did she do? Please tell me. The monument was made of red granite topped with two flaming urns. <gasps> a statue of a young woman bearing a wreath stood in the stairwell, touching the bronze door that led to Josie's future resting place. The tomb cost Josie a fortune, but the aggravation it caused the high society ladies was well worth the price. Mm-hmm. Josie eventually passed away at age 50, which is very young. Very young. A few years later, Storyville itself was shut down by the US Navy, which was concerned about the effect it was having on its young sailors stationed in New Orleans. The brothels and bars were levelled to build a housing project, and there is no sign today that Storyville ever existed. 
But some believe that J.C. Arlington stuck around long after the death of Storyville for one last bit of attention. In the years after J.C. was buried, rumours began to spread about strange goings-on at her grave. Curiosity seekers who visited the grave ran back to town claiming they saw the urns on top of the tomb burst into flames before their eyes. Others saw an eerie red glow coming from the tomb at night, as if the granite walls were burning like hot coals. Josie's grave was soon nicknamed the Flaming Tomb. That's fabulous. Mm. Oh, I enjoyed that. I do like a bit of revenge on the snotty ones, don't you? Good on you, Josie. Good on you, Josie. You might, might go and lay some flowers. Oh, yeah. I'd love to see that tomb. It's magnificent. And it's red. Mm. The colour of her chosen profession. Yeah, lust All right. and love. We need to get to a song. We'll be back after this. Spooky Sundays with Anne and Renata on Newcastle Live. And we're back with Spooky Sundays. Oh, Renata, mm-hmm. I've got a quickie for you. Oh. For the top of the hour. Right, okay. All right. This one is another story about New Orleans, but it's about one that you never would have heard of before. Have you heard of the legend of the naked freezing ghost of New Orleans? No. I know, that's a weird one, isn't it? It's hard to think of a freezing ghost in New Orleans. Yeah, but, I know, because it's know, always hot and sweaty in New Orleans. A, yeah, hot and sweaty ghost We've got, we got to learn to say New Orleans. No, they don't like no, New Orleans. No, it's they don't like. Oh, okay. All right. New Orleans. They want New Orleans. So we've got to put a bit of the New, New Orleans. I'll just say here. <laughs> All right. Let me tell you this story. Once again, this comes from Mysterious Universe. Check out their website, guys. They do such amazing work. I'm I'm sort of in awe of the podcasts that they produce. This one, New Orleans, has often been referred to as the most haunted city in America and especially in the French Quarter, where numerous spirits are said to frequently make their presence known. Now, one spirit in particular, her name is Julie. How's that for a haunting sounded mm. name? A Jolie. A Jolie. And she is said to walk along the tops of a downtown rooftop. Rumour has it that if you look up to the rooftops of the 700 block of Royal Street, you can see Julie's ghost pacing back and forth and back and forth. According to the legend... Julie fell in love with a rich Frenchman. <laughs> did that sound French or did that just sound like it was evil? It sounded creepy. Thank really you. creepy. That's what happens when you've got a husky voice. But they were unable to get married because of their racial differences. Oh, for heaven's sakes. She was one-eighth African-American. Oh, one-eighth. Mm-hmm. She was too good for him. And unfortunately... Biracial relationships were frowned upon in the 1800s. One night during a house party, the Frenchman got frustrated with Julie's constant pressure for him to marry her. So, what do you do when somebody's pressuring you to get married? You tell them to take off all of your clothes and wait for you wait for him on the rooftop. Oh, that makes sense, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I know yeah, if Roman I came up that. to me and said, if you want to prove your love to me, take off your, all your clothes and go and stand on the rooftop, I'd be telling him to go find a different wife. Mm-hmm. 
Anyway, this poor, lovely Julie did exactly what he said. She took off all of her clothes and waited on the rooftop because she wanted to prove to him that she wanted to get married and should do anything. But he wasn't serious. Maybe he was, but she took it seriously. So she went up there to prove her deep love for him. Now, since it was December, December is winter for America, Mm -hmm. um, the air was quite frozen to death. Oh, well, it was damp and cool, apparently. It was moist, but not hot. Uh, She waited all night for him to come and join her. Now, when he finally realised that she had taken his joke seriously, he thought, oh, I I better go find her. She might still be up on that rooftop. So up he went through the door. And there he found her, frozen and naked, still holding on to the brick chimney. Apparently she died shortly after from a broken heart. So the the freezing didn't kill her. It was a broken broken heart. heart. On cold December nights, many people over the years have reported seeing poor Julie on the rooftop of 734 Royal Street, while some people see her (coughs) pacing and shivering on the rooftop completely naked, (coughs) except except for a pair of gold. (coughs) You're ruining my mind. Sorry, sorry. I'm building the tension here and you've coughed in the middle of it. What was she wearing? Except for a pair of gold hoop earrings. Well, at least she looked pretty. Oh, there goes windows in the background. <laughs> Others say that she was wearing a wedding dress. Yeah. But they all say that her ghost is still waiting for her lover to show up while pacing back and forth and back, back and, and forth, forth and along and the forth edge of the room. Oh, now, you're going too far, Renata. Sorry. <laughs> you always just have to go that little bit too far. Uh, I'd never do that. Uh, so that she's still waiting for the lover to show up and desperately trying to keep warm until finally collapsing near the break of dawn. Julie's apparition has also been seen on the balcony and inside of the house. I'm just going to put my teeth back in. Specifically. 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 In her former chambers where unexplained footsteps can... Oh, I need to go and have a cup of coffee. Um, right. Julie's apparition has also been seen on the balcony inside the house, specifically in her former chambers where <clears throat> unexplained footsteps can sometimes be heard. Additionally, the ghost of a man dressed in 19th century clothing has occasionally been seen in the windows as well, walking through the courtyard. <sighs> and if you're having relationship problems, <clears throat> so if you're having any issues, Renata, yeah. you can write your issue down on a piece of yellow paper mm-hmm. using a blue pen mm-hmm. and placing it on Julie's altar. She must have an altar somewhere. She's got an altar. Oh, and allegedly she'll answer your question with some of her centuries-old love advice. Uh, I don't think I'd take advice from someone who 
said it was okay to get naked and go and wait for your lover up on the top roof there and she listened and went and did it, that person does not have good knowledge on how to be good lovers with someone. She was love-struck. She was love-struck. Yeah. Oh, bloody Frenchmen. All right, that's my little short one. Hope you enjoyed that. All right, Renata, we're going to go to uh, the next song. We'll be back after this. Then I'm going to hand that microphone back over to you eventually. Maybe. But we'll be back after this. Bye. It's time to cross back to the other side. Welcome back to Spooky Sundays with Anne and Renata. Welcome back to Spooky Sundays with Anne and Renata. I've got a spooky story for you. Yes. What I did is I dived into Mysterious Universe Mm -hmm. and I said. Font of all good things. Oh, they've got so many good stories. And uh, Brett Swanser always writes a good story. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'd share this one with you because. We're in New Orleans right now. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we know that's the home of voodoo and all sorts of things. But apparently there's a demon or two there and some murders to talk about. So I'm going to uh, tell you this story as told by Brett Swanser mm-hmm. in Mysterious Universe. So the whole thing inevitably played out like a horror movie on October 17th of 2006, around 8.30pm, police arrived on the scene of an apparent suicide jump at the Omni Hotel in New Orleans. Mm. And the body was found smashed up of a young man who had plummeted five stories. Wow, to wind up dashed upon the hotel's parking garage. Now, at the time, they thought, you know, this is pretty straightforward. Somebody's jumped out and um, taken their own life, which happens a lot in motels, as we know. Yes. Uh, This guy had, for whatever reasons, decided to climb up into that lonely rooftop overlooking the city lights and end his own life by jumping off to oblivion. Uh, And that was that. Yet, a search of his front pocket led to the discovery of a crumpled five-page handwritten note stuffed within a plastic bag that would start the slow unfurling of one of the most gruesome, oh, I nearly didn't say that right, gruesome, senseless crimes in New Orleans history, if not actually the whole of America. It would be a murder mystery packed to the rim with grisly violence, sickening murder, and whispers of voodoo and demonic possession. Oh, there's <gasps> oh. always got to be a good demonic yeah, possession. Yeah, all sort of across the backdrop of the devastated landscape of a city still reeling from the wrath of Hurricane Katrina. Mm. So this story um, it said that might be a good time to go back a little bit to the beginning uh, to when the 28-year-old Californian native and Kosovo, Koso, Kos, Kosovo mm-hmm. and Iraq war hero Zach Bowen had received a general discharge, discharge and moved to New Orleans. We Words is getting hard, as Dave would say, where he lived a relatively carefree existence as a bartender in the French Quarter. And let's face it, bartenders have plenty of work in New Orleans. Mm, they do. They do, because there's just drunk people. They serve Alcohol 24 hours a day. 24-7, which is why there's drunk people everywhere. Um, All right, so he was a bartender at the French Quarter, uh, a quaint area known for its charming French, Spanish and Creole architecture. Mm. Recently separated from his wife, um, a stripper by the name of Lana Schupack. (laughs) 
<laughs> I bet. <gasps> oh, that's a sexy name. Uh, I've heard yeah. one. <laughs> it seems that Bowen spent most of his time here drinking, partying, and trying to put the horrors of whatever he'd been through in military service behind him. Although he was known by his friends to become a little bit down in the dump sometimes, a little bit morbid and morose, and make cryptic allusions to terrible things he'd seen in war, particularly something to do with a child. Oh, no. He was described as a mostly very personable and sociable fellow, able to push away uh, the terrible memories. I don't think you ever can. I think you just put a mask on and pretend you've pushed them away mm-hmm. yeah. to make it easier for other people to be near Indeed, the friendly, attractive and charming Bowen, Bowen had no trouble meeting girls and was one of these fellow bartender. Oh, and, were, and one of these was a fellow bartender by the name of Addie Hall. That sounds like a better name, doesn't it? The two hit it off immediately and began dating, which was right around the time when the spectre of Hurricane Katrina rolled out from over the horizon. Oh, those poor people, bringing death, destruction and suffering to the city. It's not that long ago, is it? No. Nope. Although the hurricane had left in its wake utter devastation, served as a catalyst for drawing the Bowen and Hall ever close together with Bowen moving in to live with her and the two refusing to evacuate the city when nearly everyone else did. The two became some of the sparse, ragtag group of holdouts who preferred to stay among the flood wreckage of this once vibrant city they loved rather than run away to a life of uncertainty. Indeed, they became famous for this, sometimes appearing in the news as a result of their refusal to budge where they were portrayed as Hopeless romantics, letting their reckless love lead them through hard times. With no electricity or fresh water in the area, the couple couple eked out a living using a makeshift stove filled with fallen tree limbs and bartered for goods and essential supplies with the handful of other holdouts in the area. They were also known for feeding stray cats. Oh, I love them. And because people forget about the pets. Absolutely. When this do. happens, because they get they get the humans out and quite often they don't get the pets out. So all these poor animals are left behind. Anyway, mm. I digress yet again. So they were known for feeding the stray cats and mixing up cocktails for other survivors and visitors who passed through, such as the reporters or Red Cross workers and the wild and unruly hall became rather infamous for flashing her bare breasts at passing police officers. Good on you, love. Well, that's what they do in New Orleans. Okay. New Orleans. They, you get beads if you flash your boobies. I don't think we'll be flashing our boobies. So, does everyone carry beads then, just in case it happens? Apparently in the upper floors of uh, that street, they do. We'll find out and report back on that. Okay. <laughs> I can right. barely wait. Oh, okay. Barely? Bear. Uh, oh, that was really bad. All right, we'll keep going. While things started off well enough as they could, all things considered, and they managed to survive as the city around them slowly began to come back to life somewhat, is reported the couple's relationship was far from perfect and had devolved into frequent shouting matches and, and breakups. Oh. 
Mm. And they always seem to get back together again. Mm. Adding to this turbulence were numerous missed days from work and criminal charges filed against them in the form of marijuana possession for Bowen and a firearms charge faced by Hall for pulling a gun on a man during a heated argument and it was claimed by friends that Bowen often complained about his girlfriend. It's something that worries you a bit about America, isn't it? Yes, I have been worried about that. Going over because guns are a normal thing there. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in Australia, it's rare. Very rare. It's all right. Nobody's going to want to shoot us. We're, we're pretty harmless. We don't have money either, so we'll be fine. Right. Yeah, you're not convinced. No. Despite all of this, the two stayed inseparable and even stayed together when they were evicted from Hall's apartment in September of 2006 and forced to find new lodgings in the still mostly apocalyptic... Apocalyptic... Got it? Mm-hmm. Wasteland of the French Quarter. Oh, it just breaks my heart to think that beautiful part of the... The town was so devastated. Mm -hmm. They end up moving into a room above the locally renowned Voodoo Spiritual Temple on North Rampart Street, which is actually not a particularly strange thing to find in a city with a deep history of voodoo magic and its practitioners. The change of scenery apparently did nothing to cool down the animosity between these two. Uh, Their intense arguments got worse, if anything. Now, Hall in particular was said to be, by his friends, um, to be the main aggressor in these battles. That's the bloke. Uh, He was rather aggressive, drunk, irrationally jealous and possessive. Oh, no, that's the woman. um, She was possessive towards her boyfriend, who was constantly accusing of cheating on her. Hang on, does that make sense, what I just said? Hall in particular was said by friends to be the main aggressor in these battles, reportedly being a rather aggressive drunk and irrationally jealous and possessive towards her boyfriend, who she was constantly, right, she was constantly accusing of cheating her. I was just testing you were listening, Renata. Okay. So during this time, Hall simply stopped showing up for work altogether for most of the part. Both her and Bowen were known to drink nearly constantly, which only added fuel to the arguments and Hall's jealous rages. Yet despite this churning turmoil, the two still inexplicably stuck together and people who knew them claimed that they were capable of great affection, kindness, romance and signs of love towards each other, sort of a deep love-hate relationship, like there was never one before, I suppose. Nobody's like that in real life, are they? A lot. It seems that nothing, not the devastation of the hurricane, nor their bumpy patches seem to ever be able to truly break them apart. On October 5th, 2006, oh, we're going to be there as an anniversary. (gasps) I think we're going to that voodoo shop. I think we are. We'll we'll get get into you. So on October 5th, 2006, they apparently got into another spat of drinking which time Hall confronted him about the perceived cheating and threatened to kick him out of the apartment. According to witnesses, the um, argument was more he- no more heated than what was usual for them and they would just try to work it out. And when neither of them seemed uh, much around, it assumed they're actually because... what That's not making sense. Words are hard. So according to witnesses... The argument was no more heated than was usual for them and it was just assumed they were going to kiss and make up as always. Oh, I left that bit out. That helps. 
Bowen had even complained about the whole ordeal to the landlord who had told them that you should just try and work it out and when neither of them was seen much around it, was assumed that it was exactly what they'd done. So everyone thought they'd just, you know, got it sorted, it was all quiet. Mm -hmm. In the following days after that night, Bowen would appear at his usual bar and was described as being very friendly and extremely high spirits, enthusiastically talking about a vacation and Cozumel, probably didn't say that right, and generally reported by drinking buddies and other bar patrons as being in the best mood he'd been in a long time. And where's Hall? Oh, well, do you know what? We're going to take a break and I'll come back and tell you more. Ah. You're listening to Spooky Sundays with Anne and Renata on Newcastle Live. And welcome back to the story of Bowen and Hall, who have now moved into the French Quarter. They've been arguing and at each other, and people are just hoping they'll kiss and make it up. But let's find out what happened to these two lovebirds, shall we, Renata? Mm, I don't think it's going to end well. You've got a feeling? Mm. Mm, all right. So there was no indication that anything was particularly out of the ordinary with this because he was in such a good mood, although he seemed to be eating, drinking, and generally spending more money than usual. When he went drinking with his friends on the evening of October 16th, so this is 12 days later, yeah? Mm -hmm. Bowen was his usual cheerful self and showed no signs of anything amiss. Then on the night of October 17, Bowen found himself having a drink at the Omni Hotel. Omni Hotel. We've come back full circle. It would be this it would be his last drink. This is where we find ourselves back at the grim scene at the Omni Hotel with the battered, lifeless body of Bowen lodged in the garage roof and baffled police studying the cryptic note he had scrawled out beforehand. In the note were clear directions to the address where he lived and a chilling confession to the brutal murder of his girlfriend. According to Boken Bokens had to ruin a moment. How, according to Bowen's spooky letter on October fifth, two thousand and six, uh, he had suddenly gone to Hall and strangled her to death, with the note stating, "I killed her at one a.m. Thursday, five October. I very calmly strangled her. It was very quick." The police spared no detail of the ensuing carnage in the letter, which, among other things, stated. This is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one I took. If you send a patrol car to 826N Rampart, you will find the dismembered corpse of my girlfriend Addie in the oven, Ew. on the stove, Ew. and in the fridge, oh. and a fully signed confession from myself, Zach Bowen. I scared myself not by the action of calmly strangling the woman I loved for one and a half years and then desecrating her body, but by my entire lack of remorse. I've known forever how horrible of a person I am. Ask anyone. And decided to quit my jobs and spend the 1500 cash I had being happy until I killed myself. So, that's what I did. Good food, good drugs, good strippers, good friends, and any loose ends I may have had. I didn't contact any of my family, so that'll explain the shock, and had a fantastic time living out my days. 
It's just about time now. So a search of the video surveillance footage of the hotel roof at the time showed a distressed-looking Bowen with drink in hand pacing about and repeatedly, uh, repeatedly approaching the edge of the roof, only retreat and pace again as if sure what to do or if he would go through with it, Finally, before, uh, fi- before finally and fatally plunging over the edge. The corpse had also been subjected to numerous cigarette burns, which that had claimed to be self-punishment for what he had done. What a tortured soul. I mean, it's horrible what he's done to his girlfriend, but he was such a tortured soul. So he did this as um, punishment, failings as a human being. Concerned police hurried to the specified address and had no trouble entering during to the key uh, had been found in Bowen's pockets. Immediately they were met with the jarring sight of a message spray painted across the walls that read, Please call my wife. I love her. I'm a total failure. Look in the oven. Please help me stop the pain. My God, this is heartbreaking. In the kitchen were two pots, one of which contained Hall's head and another containing her hands and feet as well, as well as oven trays holding her dismembered arms and legs, all of which have been thoroughly cooked. This reminds us of an Australian mm -hmm, murder. To separate the meat from the bone. Oh, no, don't. As horrifically stated in the note, I'd say this person has had a psychotic break. Depending on the report, these parts were seasoned with herbs and partially eaten. Others claim that the parts have been rather charred, with some sources even saying that potatoes and carrots had been prepared and placed upon the counter to add the pots. Add to the pots, all of which would later earn the Bowen the nickname Katrina Cannibal. The woman's torso had not been cooked yet. It was found wrapped in plastic and stuffed into the refrigerator. Other reports would claim that Bowen had sexually assaulted the corpse before chopping it up as well. Yeah, this story is definitely going in the second half of the show. Yes. The corpse was in a uh, such a gruesome state that it took a few days to even properly identify, but it turned out indeed to be, sadly, the bot- body of Hall. Authorities pieced together a grisly scene of Bowen strangling Hall in the bathtub before dismembering her with a knife and hacksaw after which he had carefully cleaned the bathroom, set the thermostat to 60 degrees to delay the inevitable rotting of the body. He's really thought this through. And then nonchalantly going out to spend money and live it up for a full 10 days with no one being any the wiser of the horrors that were lying within that apartment. During this time, he had also taken the time to write a full confession within the pages of his girlfriend's diary outlying the whole ghastly ordeal and containing some of the more grotesque revelations, such as the alleged necrophilia with the corpse and the revelation that he had stopped his preparation of the corpse when he was only half done. Interestingly, besides the, despite the widespread claims of cannibalism, police claimed that autopsy reports from Bowen showed no signs of human flesh in his stomach. Even for a city that has had more than its fair share of crime and gory, violent history, the Bowen murder proved to be one of the most unsettling and sickening ones that have ever been seen. 
uh, one of the police officers on the job said, I've been on the job for 40 years and the first time I've ever seen it at that level. It was obviously very gruesome. The whole horrific crime was so shocking that the apartment where it all went down has become known as the Rampant Street Murder House. And the truly hideous crime reverberates through New Orleans to this day. What caused this young man to suddenly so completely and viciously ravage a woman that he'd been so in love with and with such relatively little provocation? I suppose no one would really know. You don't know what happened at that moment when he broke. One of the main theories is that this man was haunted by some unknown demons from his past in the military. And with constant drama in his relationship, a simmering time bomb waiting to go off. However, although he did have relationship issues, just like many people, Bowen was mostly described by those who knew him as a basically good-hearted person who was well-liked and gave no indication that he was at all capable of such atrocities. Look, I'm going to leave it there. But there's something that you all really need to know. And that is, we are investigating that apartment. Mm-hmm. And the oven is still there. So when we come back from New Orleans, we will be able to report back to you what we felt in that apartment and whether or not we think that the ghost of Bowen and Hall still linger there. I can see a spirit box session happening. Me too. Mm. Hope you enjoyed that story. We'll be back more after this song. You're listening to Spooky Sundays with Anne and Renata on Newcastle Live. Welcome back, my crawlers, and it is that time again. Yes, it is time to delve into the creepy corner where we dig the dirt on everything pop culture and paranormal. And this week, we are taking a little bit of a detour from our travel section, and we are headed back to the movies. A movie with a difference this week, as we're going to start to investigate some multicultural horror in the form of the brand new movie, It Lives Inside. Tamira, what's going on with you? All the stories we heard growing up, they're all true. It lives inside. Don't you hear it? <laughs> what is the Pishash? Huh? The Pishash doesn't kill you right away. on you slowly. When it's ready, teach your soul. What do we do? We must make an offering. So as you've just heard from the trailer, it seems like this one is not going to hold back any punches when it comes to the scares. Let's find out a little bit more about the story. 
Desperate to fit in at school, Sam rejects her East Indian culture and family to be like everyone else. However, when a mythological demonic spirit called the Pashash latches onto her former best friend, she must come to terms with her heritage to defeat it. Now, I find it a little refreshing to get something different, a different flavour, if you will, thrown into our general ghost slash demon slash possession genre, which is definitely a well-mined concept coming off the back of hugely popular franchises like The Conjuring and Paranormal Activity. So having a multicultural angle really makes things a little bit different and the perspective is really what gives it its strength. As the film's writer, director, Bashal Dutta says of making the movie, its inspiration came from his own childhood, the experience of being born poor in India and moving to North America. Uh, the story is influenced by Indian demonic mythology, as well as a personal story from Dutta's grandfather. He says, after I moved to North America from India at the age four, a lot of my social education came from watching American horror films. I always wondered, what were families like mine doing when Bruce the Shark tore through Amity's waters, while Freddy Krueger slashed teens in the dreamscape, and while Jack Torrance chased his son through maze-like halls of the Overlook? As it developed, it lives inside formed its own dual identity, much like mine. On one hand, it's a love letter to the community and the culture that raised me, while on the other, it's a visceral experience that is designed to instill the same raw terror in its viewers that my favourite horror films instilled in me. So by injecting the Indian culture into the American archetype of the typical horror film, this brings something different and fresh, but it is not the only film that has done it. Recently there's been a little bit of a trickle of these movies coming back into pop culture. Uh, in 2022 we had the movie Uma which uh, kind of went a little bit under the radar, especially here in Australia. And it dealt with uh, Amanda, who is played by the amazing Sandra Oh, and her daughter who lived on an American farm. When the remains of her estranged mother arrive from Korea, Amanda becomes haunted by the fear of turning into her own mother. And it's very interesting that this idea of the other that we're always so frightened of doesn't always have to represent a monster or a ghost or a demon. It can represent a culture which we're not really, you know, comfortable with acknowledging or a past that doesn't necessarily sit with how we are trying to work our way into the world and be seen and be understood. This idea of otherness, though, doesn't necessarily always have to be encroaching on the American dream. Sometimes it is best put to use in the reverse, when we put an American into a culture that they do not understand that is not of the norm, like in 2016's The Forest, starring Natalie Dormer. Now, the majority of the story of this one is set around Ayukigahara, the suicide forest at the base of Mount Fuji, also known as the Sea of Trees. Uh, if you would like to know a little bit more about this, Anne and Renata have covered it in an episode of True Hauntings, which is spectacular, so make sure you go and listen. And in this film, Natalie Dormer's character is called by Japanese police, 
who have discovered that her troubled twin sister has gone missing and her body has ended up in this forest, which is a popular destination for those wanting to take their own lives. She has to come to terms with not only the mystery of her sister's death, but the bigger mystery of what draws people to the mysterious sea of trees. So the idea of a stranger in a strange land can be traced back even further to the early 2000s when we had a huge trend of Japanese movies being remade for American audiences. Probably the most uh, popular, uh, and cinematically at least, would be The Grudge starring Sarah Michelle Gellar, TV's Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, she played Karen Davis who moves to Tokyo where she encounters a supernatural spirit that possesses its victims. And after a series of horrifying and mysterious deaths, Karen makes a vow to stop any further deaths. Now this movie really demonstrates what it is like to be completely out of your depth culturally. Sarah Michelle Gellar does a great job at playing the other in a movie that is all about otherness and the funny thing about The Grudge is it started as a remake of the Japanese movies, but the franchise, well, the American version of the franchise, ended up taking the horror all the way from Japan and ended up very much nestled within the American suburbs at the end of its last sequel, which is the whole intent and purpose of a good horror movie. It takes things that are outside, things that are other, things that are strange, and puts it right in your living room with you for you to deal with and for you to fight through. And at the end of the movie, you survive just like our final girls. Well, hopefully you do. And you've learned a little something about yourself and about life when you get to the end credits. Now, just because I've mentioned these movies doesn't mean there aren't hundreds and hundreds more that you can go and pinpoint and say these are great examples of culture clashing and complementing horror. So if you have a favourite, we would love to hear from you and let us know which one really gave you the frights. So until next week, it's back to Anna Renata. We're going to close up the creepy corner and I will see you very, very soon. Keep it creepy, folks. You're listening to Spooky Sundays with Anne and Renata on Newcastle Live. Welcome back, everyone, to Spooky Sundays. Just before we finish up for this evening, uh, what's going on, Anne? What are we doing? Well, we're in New Orleans. <laughs> Uh, I think at this stage we would have recovered or we would be in the process of recovering of what is essentially 24 hours of travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and we will have been in our commune for one night mm-hmm. in Madame Isabel's mm-hmm. and we will have started to venture out and explore the yes. area. So where are you going first? What are you going to do first? Um, oh, I don't know. I have never been there, so it's it's... I guess going to have a look at some of the um, uh, unique parts of the French Quarter, yeah, wherever I think, we can get to. I think we'll head straight into the French Quarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, that will be the best thing. We're, I think we're about two blocks from it, so mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a walk-in, but we're going to need the walk-in mm-hmm. because we're going to be eating yeah, quite a food bit. heaven. Mm, everything but fish. Uh, and the first thing I'm going to be doing 
is looking for a cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. I'm going to need a coffee. Oh, tell us, people, oh. whether they, whether the coffee is yeah drinkable. Oh. We're not sure. My experiences sure. with America when I was there, um, was it about 10 years ago, is that um, they were getting better, but it was still a long way to go. Oh, they like drip filtered coffee, which mm-hmm. just is not enough body for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a bit watery. A bit watery, but uh, I will be looking for a coffee, and I'll be putting my face out into the sun, trying to let that jack, jet, jack, or jack clang uh, pass over me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we're going to be doing some walking, and we'll look at some shops, and we'll eat and mm-hmm. eat and. Mm-hmm. And don't forget, there is still an opportunity to vote for us in the Australian Podcast Listeners Awards. Uh, so if you jump to uh, the True Hornings podcast, you'll actually see a link down there, uh, which uh, will take you directly to the Australian Podcast Awards. And it takes literally a click to vote for us. So yeah. we would so love to be in uh, the top 50 this year. And it's difficult for us because we're in the category of true crime, which... There is so many fabulous podcasts and so many people listen to true crime. They've got thousands upon thousands upon thousands, if not tens of thousands or more, of listeners. Yes. So we're a um, a little fish in a rather big pond, and I don't really think our category – I think we deserve our own category. There should be a supernatural category. Yes. Um, Yeah, so we need your help. We we would love to make it in the top 50, and the the top 20 would make us even happier. That would. So – even though you think your vote, oh yeah, everyone else will do it. No, we need you as well. And it costs you nothing. A little bit of your time. If you've enjoyed tonight's show, send us a text. All right? Send us a text and let us know because we pre-record all these so you can uh, enjoy the content still while we're away. And we'd love to know that you guys are appreciating. What's the number? Zero four nine zero eight four triple eight six. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Enjoy the rest of the music we've chosen for you, and we will be back next week. We hope if we get it recorded in time, because at this stage it is Sunday and we leave Friday, but we're going to get it done. Yeah, part two of our New Orleans adventure. All right, we'll be back next week. Bye. See you later. Stay spooky. See you on the dark side. And don't Don't be be a dickhead. dickhead.